Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. And it is time for Stroke Side to hold and for Bow Side to get in because we have, I mean, this is this is basically our let's end the year. We're going to take a Christmas break. We're ending on an immense podcast. Am I going to tell people who, who who's there or are you going to tell people who... I have no idea what you're talking about. We're ending the year on a on a high note. We've got some blonde bloke with a chest like a Cooper's barrel, some weird name like Handy Wig Bodge or something, something to do with with hair pieces and Masonic handshakes. He said he's a bit of a rower. He dropped us a message and said, can I come on and talk about rowing? We went, oh, go on then. We may as well. And to be honest, I don't know why you're giving it the big sell, Lewin. Because it's Hodge. It's actually Hodge. We, 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 can't, we can't do the thing that we do with the other three, okay? And just, like, take the mick, because this is Hodge. This is, this is the saviour of Beijing. This is the conqueror of Dorney Lake. This is the, the lover of Rio. This man is, I personally believe, at least 50% of the Hodge and Reed thing that basically has been the spearhead of British rowing since 2008. And one thing I will say, Aaron, are you meant to meet your idols? There is a school of thought that says you should never meet your heroes because they will always disappoint you. I have just met one of mine in the recording of this episode, and I would like to say that they are wrong. That is absolute and utter bollocks. Andrew Triggs Hodge, the finest stroke of his generation. No, we're not going to argue about this. Three-time Olympic gold medal winner, multiple world champion, the one half of the pair that made the Kiwi pair great. It was just an honour and a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, we give you Hodge. What's that thing on the back of your wall? No, the big big poster. That's just the blind. I thought it was going to be something like the Krebs cycle in like ultimate detail <laughs> or sort of wizardry you... process I... that's been broken down to the nth degree or something stupid. Yeah, he did science a long time ago. He's forgotten it all now. <laughs> I could probably still smash out the Krebs cycle. The Kre- even I could do the Krebs cycle and it's been a long <laughs> time. Yeah. It's me guys, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't boast I can't boast an erg or or a what bike or a cool Krebs cycle, but I, I have I have Charlotte's Stegosaurus on this side, and I have Laura's Stegosaurus on this side. They accompany every recording, and so far they've brought us very good luck. We can go and we can do like a proper introduction. Today we have an interview with a very special guest who we're going to refer to as Hodge. Yes, you're going to refer to as. The man who's won more Olympic gold medals than James Cracknell. (laughs) A fact that may be expunged from the internet after this podcast goes out. Um, Officially, according to birth certificate, Andrew Triggs Hodge. Um, Welcome to the podcast. And thank you very much for coming on board. You guys have been inspiring me for like weeks now. Probably even months. I mean, how long have you guys been going? About four months now. We, yes. we, we, we started when it was actual proper lockdown, first time around, I think. I think, yeah. he's talk, I think he's talking about a different podcast. That does not sound like us at all. <laughs> but you guys have been uh, a key motivation and a, and a 
breath of fresh air and I can only applaud your work and it's an honour to be on your podcast. Can I just say, while we're having a love in here, that I I am deeply uncomfortable with this whole Hodge thing. Now, I'm going to explain my reasoning. You you are obviously fine with us calling you Hodge. You've said, call me Hodge, that's fine. And you call call yourself that. And Lewin has taken it up at like the the man that he is. But you are a three-time Olympic champion. You are a multiple world champion. You are the finest stroke of your generation. It's, it's like Jehovah coming down and saying, oh, Aaron, just call me mate. <laughs> Can I preface it? Can I put like Sir Hodge, your, your Hodgeness? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just my northerness. I feel like I should like tug a forelock and doff a cap or, or <laughs> sacrifice a whippet or something. <laughs> but if, you, if, if it's, I mean, our first Olympian and, and frankly, um, probably our last, given the comments we've made about Steve, Matt and James in the past, um, <laughs> Thanks for coming on. I'll work on the Hodge thing over the course of the interview. Well, hey, let's let's get to know each other properly, and then you can call me Hodge properly. Like, uh, look, it's an honour to be on. And you guys, like I say, you you've tackled some great topics. You've done it with a humour and a humility, and it's uh, what this sport needs more of. So, um, Sir Aaron, Sir Lewin. Off we go. We've been ennobled before a man with three Olympic gold medals. I feel like if, if I pass in my sleep tonight, and, and if anyone's listening, I don't want that to happen, uh, I would die fairly happy. So there we go. Yeah. Off we go. Let's lead on. It's, it's, it's the only ennoblement we're ever going to get. Let's face it, the Queen's not going to pay any attention to us. Right, so we, we've been blathering on in a big way, sort of partly on the podcast, partly on in private, and we're thinking at the moment, ways that rowers can make rowing better. How can we actually make the sport more appealing, more enjoyable for all concerned? What, what, I mean, you've really been into trying out different formats and, and trying to push different sorts of racing and different sorts of pushing a boat backwards down a river for the fun of it. So why, why don't you tell us a bit about what you do to have more fun in rowing (laughs) to have more fun in rowing well i mean that's why i started the sport because someone suggested um a friend of mine back at uni uh a a fantastic woman called rebecca wolfendale um i was was just looking around we're having a chat and she said you know why don't you try rowing and i was like i had no idea what rowing was you know what it was all about any of that and uh, i was just well, I didn't really have an answer for her. So I said, well, I'll give it a go. Um, so I turned up at the Freshers' Fair. and That kind of innocent exchange, start, well, it completely transformed my life. Like, it, it, it sort of encapsulated in hindsight the power of opportunity, the power of the ability to be, like, uh, open-minded to try something new or to find and search out opportunity or to, to go all out to present and give people opportunity that don't have it. And I think that's where that's kind of one way or another coined my whole experience in rowing, you know, to be better as a rower was about creating opportunity, rowing with new people, trying things, being challenging, being challenged. And that, that sort of whole mantra led to me finding how I could be, as better rowers as I could possibly achieve to be. Um, and I think when I look at the wider sport, it's the same thing. It's like 
we've got to be open to try new things. We've got to be daring and dare to fail and just try stupid things. And, and in there, in, in that sort of exploratory concept of, of, of breaking the mold and doing something different is for me, certainly, and I hope some others, a sort of enjoyment, an intense sort of voyage of discovery that will lead to something new and discovering something we didn't know. And, and that for me is, is enjoyment. That's, that's a thrilling concept to sort of have a stupid idea and just try it for the sake of it. And I think when, you know, there's not going to be one solution that's going to make rowing different or appeal to more people. It's going to be lots of different things. So I guess, you know, as I kind of journeyed through this amazing sport, this sport that I undoubtedly love, you know, what it has given me so much. And when I think about how I can, well, I don't even think about it, just stuff invades my brain on a seemingly daily basis of actually the reasons I love this sport, the reasons I'm frustrated with it, the reasons it could be better or worse or, or, the, or just the different perspectives, which I've never even thought about that come across. And, you know, some from your podcast, some from others, some from conversations, and I just keep exploring this wonderful sport. So, you know, that was it really. I just start coming up with stupid ideas. And I guess I have the, uh, the state of mind where I just think, why well, sod it, let's try and do it. So then you come up and, you know, one of the reasons I love this podcast is because, you know, Lewin, I think you were one of the first people to sign up for that crazy little sprint event that we tried. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was, since I sort of like became a grown up and stopped obsessing about Henley, that was like the inspiration for every kind of like daft idea that I've never put into practice, but stuff like enduro rowing, sort of like you have 11 boats on the water, a 300 meter course. And you just do a round robin. You get you get the results out to your boat on Twitter, basically. You get the fastest time for the the course. You get the most wins. You get the fastest overall time for the eleven races that you do. And, and so you've got eleven boats that can be competing for lots of different prizes. And so it's not just going to go to those guys who are planning on rowing kind of like that 3,300 meters overall, the fastest out there, because they might lose a race. So it's kind of like the Tour de France. But yeah, all these stupid ideas just jumping into my head. It's, it's like, why don't we have an Olympic head race? Or even better, <laughs> an Olympic bumps race? Now you're talking on a bendy course with corners. Nasty corners. Yes. Like Boston trials. <laughs> <laughs> no it's exactly that and it's you know we, we've, we're kind of a very conformist sport you know if you look at our competition structure it now more or less entirely resorts to a 2k straight lane straight course laned six lanes from the first time you enter the sport as a junior all the way up to masters and then at the pinnacle at the olympics and you know we have some great events some just magical events which you know exist on rivers and have the sort of the character that you get between different courses but they kind of seem to be taking second place behind straight courses and it's it's this kind of how do i say this um 
we're, we're a kind of highly professional sport. No, not professional. Performance sports. We're a performance sport. We're not professional in any, actually in any way, shape or form. We're just performance. Everything is bent on trying to be the fastest from A to B. And I think part of us have forgotten actually there's so much more to sport. It's, you know, ultimately it's about enjoyment. It's enjoyment to do it. It's enjoyment to see it, to witness it, to experience it, to be part of that um, challenge and that environment and that community. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting, you know, where, you know, you look at Zoomerg, which, you know, has popped up in the last few weeks and it's just taken a really, it's so simple. It's stupid. It's like, why didn't anyone think of this years ago? And it's brilliant. And you just get someone on Zoom rowing and a load of people join them. And well, hey, presto, we've got a community. But it's, it's kind of, it's opening the doors to a different sort of rowing. And, you know, if you look at what regattas are, like regattas are our staple. Yeah. Tons of boat clubs turn up. Everyone races a couple of times a day. Most people were in a medal of some kind. No one really knows who's going on, what's going on. It's all a bit of a blur and you, you go home at the end of the day. And it kind of occurred to me that I think that, act, that format was actually the start, was one of the first sort of incarnations of participation sport. You know, if you look at where participation sport is now, you think of like half marathons, maybe some marathons. You think of the park runs. You know, loads of people come down for the day. They, they do some exercise. They go home being part of something quite fun and experiencing. But no one really knows what's going on. It's not a spectator event. But, you know, you walk away and actually the two are really similar. You know, the performance is held at different levels, but people buy into it for what they want to do. It's just that in rowing, you kind of have to get to a certain level to really sort of get into it. Whereas park runs is a much more entry level. And rowers, rowing, we just kind of haven't figured out how to sort of make that bubble bigger or how to, and I guess it's because there are so few venues to be able to hold regattas of a certain size that can actually, you know, get beyond a, a critical mass. Whereas park run, you can do it in your, you can do yeah. it everywhere. So it's so big um, that it's kind of exploded. Whereas, you know, due to our limitations and the internet, and indoor rowing has far fewer limitations. Its, it's, it's scope is massive. So yeah, it does seem to be the future, but that doesn't stop us leading to new ways to create rowing for more people on our lakes and rivers. You know, there's a huge amount of potential, unexploited potential that we currently have in this sport. And I think we kind of need more people to be a bit brave and start experimenting and, you know, learn what's good and what's bad about our sport. We've had rowing, in Peterborough for God decades. And it's probably not the sprint rowing that doesn't work. It's probably the regatta format that doesn't work in terms of creating commercial value. You know, it's something that probably power rates could have learned from had they just looked at the model and just, well, say actually, well, it hasn't worked for them. So how's it going to work for us? Well, probably not. So let's look at something different. Look at the, the success of the boat race and why is it successful? Is it performance outright? Well, no, because the universities could be a variety of different standards. They just need to be competitive. What's exciting is actually the clashing and the course and the bends and, and the, the unknowns. It's not necessarily Oxford and Cambridge, I don't think. It's just the fact that it's actually quite fun to watch. There's a lot to unpick in there, Andy. Uh, 
Hodge, sorry. Just, <laughs> just, just, just Hodge. I'll get there in the end. Um, th- the first thing is there is scope to be a bit more adaptable about what we do. But I'm, I'm just wondering if the reason why we've become so tied in to the 2K, I always preferred head racing to 2K uh, for some reason, probably the Northern Barbarian in me. But have we got tied into it? Because rowing now is kind of on a pyramid that's, that's push. you know, everyone's trying to move up all the time. Whereas if you do a park run, you take the children and you, you know, you walk a bit and you run a bit and then you maybe go to a cafe for breakfast afterwards. Or if you're a cyclist, cyclists will chat on the way around. They might stop halfway around and have a cup of coffee and a bun before finishing their ride. We don't really have that in rowing. We don't really have that family participation thing. If you're a rower, you're expected to be getting better. Otherwise, that's, that's kind of what the sport's built on. And I'm just wondering if we need to look back at the past because when we actually, when rowing exploded in the, in the Victorian period, putting a picnic hamper in a, in a boat and going for a paddle with your family up, up the river for four or five miles and then having a picnic on a nice day and then paddling back was a thing. Whereas now when we get in a boat, it's what's on the schedule for today. So have we, have we got lost in the ethos of we've got to get better, we've got to, we, we need to be upping our game all the time? I'm not sure it's that. So I think the Victorians, the old rowing is probably the new cycling or, you know, the new running, you know, the new park run. And I don't think we can ever reclaim that ground because no. to get a boat, to boat it and all that stuff, it's just so much easier to do other sports now. So I think... On a, on a feasibility ground, that argument's kind of lost. But what I think we are missing, and it's really interesting to hear you compare those different sports to rowing, is I think we've got to take a look at actually what kind of sport we are. And, you know, we often compare ourselves to cyclists and, uh, you know, certainly like those endurance kind of sports. But in actual fact, that's not the thing that defines us on a competition structure. And when I say a competition structure, because that's actually where sports thrive, the training bit's kind of irrelevant. And running, cycling, they're the sports for the masses. You turn up hundreds, tens of thousands, whoever, or there's tens of thousands of events which, with fewer people. But it's the part, that's the participation side. It's the individual side. problem with rowing is we're not an individual sport. I know there's a few single scholars who will shout loudly about the mag- magical aspects of single, but it's a very small minority. Rowing is a club sport. That's the competition structure we hold ourselves to. That's how we organize ourselves. The, the, the little sprint event I held, which uh, Lewin kindly entered, um, which we can go much more into later. But my, my, my goal of that was to try and liberate the athlete from the club. It was, I wanted to do it outside of clubs, try and get people to put their singles and their pairs on their roof and come and do something without their coach saying so but what i found very quickly was that i just met rowers who no idea of what was happening they were like well i well, coach what do you think was the automatic response from all the athletes and even though i had coaches going yeah great support it go off you go you know put the boat on your your, your car and off you go and, and we just didn't no one entered because we hadn't gone through the club structure. And that really pointed to me that it wasn't a problem. It's just that was a fact. And actually, we are a club sport and we have to heal to that. So when we compare ourselves with sports, we need to be comparing ourselves with club sports like rugby, football, hockey, whatever they are, not with tennises and 
um, and, and cycling and things like that. And when you look at club sports, you could argue that, you know, football is a, uh, is a high participation sport, you know, jumpers for goalposts in the field, etc. And that's rugby is probably closer to rowing because generally speaking, it's not jumpers for goalposts. You might take a ball and throw it around, but it's not rugby. You know, rug, to do rugby, you need a pitch, you need the, the high posts, um, you need a, a degree of skill and coordination to build team to make it work properly. And rugby doesn't really happen outside of the clubs. So that's what I think we need to be looking at as a sport is, well, why do, why, why do club sports like rugby work and rowing not? And I think that's where we, as a sport, need to start investigating and again, it's, it's why I think part of the reason why regattas don't really work is because it's, we're a club sport, but we're trying to apply a participation model where everybody turns up and has a go. And, but what it does point towards is that then we need to produce something on the water, which is fun to watch. We need to pull in spectators. Now you need to move away from 2K straight lane courses because that's pretty dull. You need to move away from regattas so you need to move to club versus club match racing and you start thinking well actually hang on a minute like when i was when i look at the boat race some of the best racing i remember was the match racing before it you know the oxford versus molesy you know when we raced leander and dusted them up fantastically some of the fantastic racing you know is absolutely brilliant you know you kind of start to think about those one-on-ones and then I was suddenly realized well every weekend was you in such and such a four racing against the other four and you'd be doing 2k pieces up and down bashing the hoolies out of each other and the, the the racing the actual racing was nip and tuck and it was you know who got the fastest bit around the bend and came off the thing and there was shouting and screaming and the coach was down two and all this was happening but no one saw it because we hadn't developed a race platform to expose it. And now I think, so when I'm, you know, when I think about our sport now, there is so much life in it. You know, when I think about Brooks racing against Brooks and having these, these charges up and down the Wallingford stretch, it just, I just would, I wish I could see that, you know, I wish I could feel that energy. And that's the bit I think, where we have more, more potential in this sport than we realize. And then that also led me down this sort of thinking of, well, how do we create some short format racing, which isn't, sows the seeds for, what's the things that we enjoy about rugby? You know, it's the, the underdog. It's how, actually, it's not just brute physical performance, it's skill, but it's skill in a variety of areas, which expose strengths and weaknesses in different teams. It's tactics, it's luck, it's the streaker, it's all these sorts of things which come on and actually influence the flow of play. And everything I've described actually is a nightmare when all you want to do is go from A to B as fast as possible. You know, you strip away everything else and you make it this Puritan sport of A to B as fast as possible. And suddenly you've gone so pure, it's boring. Yeah. You've stripped out all the bits that make it exciting why we scream and shout at the tv on you know watching a football match or a, or a rugby game and you know how leicester won the 
you know, the premiership, whatever it is, a few years ago, you know, all those things just don't happen in rowing because it's just A to B as fast as you can go. And that's the thing. I think we've got, we've got the opportunity. We just need to have some brave people, ideally with a bit of money to help inject it and, and sort of drive it forward. We, 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 we've made it a clinical execution of everything you've trained for between A and B rather than the things that we love about the sport, which, and I, I said before, I always preferred head racing and match racing to regatta racing because you, you'd go to Nottingham, it would be, the wind would be driving rain into like tacks from a nail gun. Your captain would tell you that you had to go skins because you were Agecroft, even though you were turning blue. <laughs> they'd be holding you on the line because they weren't sure about the stream and all of a sudden you were going to go and then, you know, you, you were catching up to them, but they were catching up to you. And it's, it's, it's everything that, that, that you train for with your mates in a boat to make it move fast. It's, this is what you live for rather than that pure, how fast can we get from, from this point to this point? And if we do it well enough, then we might get through to the next round or, or whatever. Now, now imagine if you could break down a head race into a section of smaller races. So maybe it's two, three, two Ks within an hour's format, which means, and you, so each two K is a different kind of thing. Maybe it's even in different boats. Maybe it's round corners and handbraking it round boys um, and loops of a course, but it's match racing. So this weekend we're going to race Sagecroft and the next weekend someone's going to come to us and you have this home and away and you have this constant you're basically saying, you know, you're having a match every week. Yeah. And you then start to have to weigh up the difference between, well, we could train a lot harder, but if you train really hard, you're going to be really slow in the weekend. So now you have this extra dynamic. And it's, it's exactly what rugby players and football players are challenged with. The, the problem we have, and this is where I think it all stems to, is all the money. Well, it, the, the money is the problem. We have too much of it in one area, not of it enough, enough of it in other areas. The Olympics is 2K, multi-lane coursing. That flows down to world rowing. World rowing fl world flows down to our international fed our national federations. Our national federations flows down to our clubs, flows down all the way down to juniors. And everything is in that line. And we've got UK sport inserted into that. And it just means that to actually break out of that, we athletes in that in that with the dream of doing the olympics will never leave the 2k line because they want to achieve the pinnacle but then we've got henley 2k racing okay it's match racing it's it's that that that, that tournament format still a, a you know an elaborate regatta but it's it's still there 2k racing any club oarsman or woman who's going to who wants to get there has to do 2k racing now are the national championships and even indoor rowing. Come on, it's 2K racing. <laughs> like, to, to get out of that is going to take a monumental effort. Um, we tried sprint rowing. Sprint doesn't work. Okay, we've been through that. The, the, the areas we need to go in are actually more familiar, but more daring. Do that the other way around. The areas we need to go to is more daring, but more familiar then we're, you know, then we realize. What you're asking for is more diversity in the sport and culture of rowing. 
you want to do two k race, go and do a two k race. You want to go to the Olympics, well, this is your, your pathway. But you could all, you could also just strap the single on or the double on the top of the car and drive off because there's this event, and you're asking clubs to start instead of funneling upwards the pyramid towards British rowing and towards the Olympics all the time. With, you know the most talented constantly going up. You're asking clubs to engage with other clubs and create a, a more diverse culture and a more diverse. You know, you might have an athlete like Lewin, who was a lot faster than me, who's great for 2Ks, but I really like 5 and 6Ks on a head race. I would have done that all, all season perfectly happily. You're asking for more diversity as a sporting culture in rowing and, and more a, a, a plurality of events rather than it's, it's 5K in heads and it's 2K in the regatta season. No, it's, 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 it's kind of that brave, dare to think differently in the moment. You know, dare I say it, you know we, we're a sport of white middle-aged men usually on the conservative side and to move that is huge you know it's and i'm not saying i'm not saying those particular traits are bad i'm just saying that we're kind of stuck in our ways and i think it's uh the the, the, the best you know i'm just dreaming of the day when either i win the lottery <laughs> someone hands me a lot of money and be like right let's go do this because i know it's going to work and if you can make it risk-free, actually, if you can make it beneficial to a club to try this concept, then you'll be fine and off, off and away. Yeah. But um, it's, it's going to take, yeah, it'll take a bit of effort. I'm, ju- I'm just going to ask this. And we, we've talked about the earlier ethos of rowing, which is where we've come from. And we, we, can't, we can't go back to that because, you know, to get a handmade wager boat in the Victorian style would cost as much as a small house in Newcastle nowadays. Um, 3,500 pounds. Yeah, about, <laughs> about that. You can get a decent house for that, you know, or a, a cardboard box by the side of the road, depending. And I'd like my cardboard box, you cheeky bugger. When you're talking about shifting the sport, you're also talking about shifting cultural and sporting values that actually go right back into that era. And you, you're looking at the division between gentlemen amateurs and, and professional watermen and, and, and the, the way that the structures of the clubs have evolved, where you've got some clubs that are invitational only and the powerhouses tend to be on the Thames, although, you know, Agecroft is a superb club. Tyne up in Newcastle have, have had a, a fantastic run um, after, after, they developed into a world-class start center. If you were blue sky thinking of how to change this and you were given a free hand and a pot of cash, what would you do? And none of this is legally binding. And if anyone from British rowing is listening to this, it's not libelous either. We're just, we're just talking out loud. Can I, can it be patented so that actually only I can do it just so I don't know, I can have the glory or something. No, I think the, this is well, copyright to Hodge. This is this is yeah. little C Hodge. Okay. The prior art does not exist. This, this is the first time we've heard it. Go for it. Go for it. Right. So look, the first thing is not to change the sport. We're not shifting the sport. What I think we can do is add something on the side of it. You know, our heritage, our, our modern heritage with 2K racing going all the way up to the Olympics is a very, very valuable contribution to sport as a whole. And it has its place what I think we need to do is actually develop something on the side of that, an offshoot which takes on its own life and caters for a whole different side of the sport, the community, new bodies of water, whatever it is. So I don't think this at all needs to be a threat to the, the um, our standard bearer of sport, which is Olympic 
you know, 2K racing. It, it's getting clubs together to do what they do normally at the weekends by themselves, but with each other. And the, the thing is, it doesn't even have to be the same format per club. The club can create its own course, which completely absurdly suits their own athletes. You know, maybe they're all massive gym monkeys and they're sort of all 50 meter power ergos and the courses are so short, there's no hope of having any sort of endurance. But the twist is that when those athletes then play away and they go to their local club and they suddenly have to do a much longer distance, they're absolutely hobbled. So it will self-manage, but the idea that clubs can exploit their own courses, their own bits of river, they can actually highlight the benefits and the, the, the traits of their bit of water. And that difference really comes through in each event. And then the other key aspect, I think, and it goes back to what, what sport are we? We were a club sport. The most important asset a club has is its land. And the more value you can make that land, the more valuable you can make that land, the stronger you are as a sport. So now you've got to think about how are we going to increase the value of our, of our sporting capital, our, our clubs? And that's, you want people to come down and enjoy it. Well, how are you going to make people enjoy sport? Well, you put, some, you put on a show, you put on some entertainment that people think, whoa, that's awesome. God, did you see that? And it's that moment of rowing has traditionally, you know, 100 years ago, it was over six kilometers. We've got shorter and shorter and shorter to 2K, and that's the Olympic standard. And then we tried sprint, and actually that doesn't quite work because it's just as boring as 2K. We can't do too long because... You know, gone are the days when hundreds of thousands of people would line the banks except the boat race. So how do we create a, a, a sort of um, a format of length that can last 90 minutes, but you can see end to end? Well, you just put turns in it, don't you? You just yeah. put a boat at each end and you get boats going round and round and round. They do it in the velodrome all the time. You know, the sort of feasibility of it works. You know, it, it, we kind of we've kind of educated ourselves to move away from so much. The best experiences of rowing, you know, from me, was like one in Seville, in uh, one training camp, and we were we were doing some paddling in fours. And you know, when you when you go out in fours, we're going to go side by side, UT two, nice and sensible. Yeah, right. You know, we did two k down the course with you know, warming up in pairs for like three strokes and it's off. And as soon as you see the other four go all four, you're like, right, go, you're on it. And then you sort of start off at 19, power stroking off at like 7.30 in the morning, which I know is late for club rowing, but for us internationals, it's quite, quite, uh, quite early. And then you get to the end of the course. And I don't know for anyone who's been to Seville, you then usually have a swim line, which kind of is meant to, as a bit of a safety thing. And then you turn into a corner and go under a bridge. And I was sort of coming down in this fall. We had the inside line, but we also had this boy to get around the swim line. So I, I kind of knew, and I had the rudder and I bloody love steering. And I knew like we had one chance to get this right. Otherwise this fall was going to get the march on us and then be able to take the inside of the corner. So we ended up, I, I mean, I, I love it because I managed to fluke it and actually get it spot on. But we, 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 we were sort of battle paddling down um, 
the bowman doing the call was up for the challenge. I could feel the energy in the boat going. So I was like, right, we're going to do this. So I managed to get my eye on the, the buoy that I needed to go around. I knew that they weren't going to give me enough room. So I had about four strokes where we were going to be clashing quite hard to then come round and get back out. And it was just, you know, when you, you hit a buoy so sweetly, it tinkers down the boat, you know, do, 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 do. And I could have steered in towards the boat, towards our sort of teammate stroke opposition, just ping this, this boy hard on the rudder, came back round, we're classed for about four strokes, and then we came out, and then we had the inside of the bend, under the bridge, into Seville town, half a length in front, and it was just magical. Oh, it was just the best experience. Like, everything came together. We all kind of held the technique, we held the power, the steering worked. It was just, you know, and that, that's the stuff that you just don't get that in 2K straight lane racing. And I think, you know, it must be so hard to commentate even on an Olympic race, except for Beijing. Because I think that was actually <laughs> quite easy to um, commentate on. But all the others, it's like, you know, they stayed half a length in front. Well done. <laughs> Dan Topolsky was famous for, he could feel, he, you know, you've got the first minute and there's lots to talk about in the first minute and then you've got the last minute and you've got a lot to talk about and then he could just talk shit for four minutes in between. <laughs> and he was good at that. He, he really knew how to do that. Oh yeah, I love all these ideas, just like, and, and the slalom and, and the idea that, you know, we've got these great big open lakes, um, you know, near, near to me that there's a lake well, it's an old reservoir, Buell Bridge. And you can't draw 2K in a straight line anywhere along it, really. But you can draw about 3K in a zigzag. <laughs> and, it, and it's just like, you start between the red boys, they start between the blue boys, and the next, they start between the green boys. And about 750 yards out there, there's another pair of red boys, pair of green boys, pair of blue boys. And then you've got to work out what the next ones are after that. Off you go. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's just, it's just, you've almost got to turn the boats into ergos. It, it's this pure test of just like, everything's got to be the same for everything. There's no kind of like judging the water. There's no stream. It's, it's like, it's like you're, you're in a boat. So you have all the skill of moving the boat, but they're just trying to take every kind of like other judgment away other than just go and get that 36 strokes a minute for six minutes. And if you do it better than the other guy, you're going to win. Rather than all, all, like all these other touches, the steering, the banks, the bends, the watermanship, all that kind of thing. But there's one thing that I've noticed and... In all the time that we've been doing this, all the people that we've interviewed, I think you're only the second person to talk about it, which is money. And something that, when I look at rowing, that really worries me, I don't know, other than Henley, I suppose, I don't know anyone who's making money out of rowing. But you look at all the other new sports that are out there, you look at triathlon, people have become millionaires from putting triathlons on. You look at MMA, nobody's doing that for free. You look at CrossFit, the whole idea is you set up your own business. Is that what's needed? 
do we need to move not completely but a little bit away from this idea of volunteerism towards people trying to make money out of the sport such an interesting concept um oh well the first thing is we shouldn't be afraid of it we shouldn't be afraid in fact we should celebrate it if someone was able to do something that made actually quite a, made it made a living let's just even say that they say yeah. they pay their own bills and have a nice life because they did something in rowing that actually succeeded well we have a few more examples and well what is it henley has enough to pay some good wages yeah but look at the dry sacker brothers you know they haven't created an event but they created the concept to ergo and the concept to blades and they're making a load of money right now um you've got height and you've got all those companies who are doing those other indoor rowers yeah. you know they're making a lot of money the question is would would water rowing ever make any money you know would is there any formats that can bring together enough critical mass of people enough money coming in that the person at the top or the owner who put all the capital at risk in the first place would ever be able to get that back and that's a big question and i'm not sure you know you look at the london marathon and that was set up very early as a charity and it kind of needed to i think on various levels um i think if there was a, a crazy enough millionaire who was willing to sort of really find out what worked in rowing, willing to put enough in to transform the sport, then maybe. But I think that's why the last, certainly the last two big events I've worked on, the one currently and the one last one, the only model I could really see them working was as a, if they were owned by a charity. Okay. Because it does take away that threat of, you know, one person making a lot of money because now suddenly you do a lot to make a charity make some money. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the, a, a great purpose. You know, there was that recent, um, Crossy did the interview with a guy who posted something on LinkedIn about rowing being the zero billion, zero billion dollar industry. Yeah. Um, fascinating sort of thoughts. And I, I think, you know, indoor rowing is moving rapidly towards that. Um, I think there's a, you know, and mainly because it gets over the critical mass bit. You know, if you're a participation sport, do you have enough people doing it? So by trainers and tops and kit who will then fund the sport and the professionals and that side, or do you have enough people watching it who wants to buy tickets and merchandise to then fund the sport and you get media rights and et cetera, et cetera. And accepting the Olympic games, it, I'd love that to be a format which brings that to life. Um, but it's, it's too big a risk at the moment. There's, there's no precedent. There's no model. There's nothing which gives you any certainty that that could happen. And at the moment, and that's only because there aren't enough people trying these straight, stupid ideas because all it takes is for one to work in a small place and actually people to realize that actually, did you know that half the town came to watch us row the other day? They're like, no, really? You know, and it's, it has to grow, it has to grow from the grassroots. And this is another thing I think, you know, we expect so much to come down from the echelons, from British rowing, from FISA, you know, whether it's rules and regulations, whether it's safety or insurance, 
And I think actually we as a community need to take that on our own shoulders a lot more. It's, it's not, like I say, it's not about breaking free and doing something different, but it's about taking the opportunities or creating the opportunities to do something different and feeling empowered that actually people will be interested just because it's different and give you a shot and not just pull it down because it's not the, you know, it could be because you're not conforming. And I think at the moment we do risk, you know, as a community, we kind of are quite happy to be silent when someone tries something new. Um, I guess it's why I've been so buoyed out or buoyed up by the, the Zoomworks thing. It's, it, it's, feels like it's taking off in a really, really positive way. So it is possible. It is possible to do something new. And, you know, Regatta London, that thing I tried was it last year, it, it, once you kind of got the message across of what it was trying to do and why it should be given a chance, people then saw it and investigated it and then were like, oh, wow, that actually is quite cool. You know, and you could see where it could start going. Unfortunately, the risk from that event was on somewhere in other places, which, which made it stop. But it, it takes a great deal of effort and a great deal of investment to make it work on a big scale in the short term. But it could work if enough people try stupid things and give it a go. And actually, we, 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 we applaud that attitude of doing something different and just trying it for the hell of it. I think, I think, and, and I think once we've realized the power of that, we, can re, we, we could find out really what's quite exciting, but I'm damned if I know exactly what it's going to be. It's, uh, it, it, it all comes down to us as a community, community embracing something a bit different. Which is a bit of a yeah. challenge because we can be quite a conservative, quite traditional, and I mean conservative with a, with a small c, but we can be quite a traditional culture and, and community. But you're talking about... I remember when the park run started and it was a word of mouth thing. And then the, when I, I was living in Sheffield at the time and there was one in the local park and I just ended up going down one morning and there wasn't very many people there the first time. There were a couple of running clubs, but within six months it was an event. And then you, and then because it was an event, there would be people who would be selling cups of tea and coffee. And then the, the, the park cafe got extra seating and then it became a thing and, so it grew, what was just an idea, you know, just meet up and run around the park for 5K, grew organically rather than a mandate from on high saying to get people fitter, what we will do is this and there'll be a five-point plan and the government will sign off on it and we'll have a, we'll have a health and safety cheat and all of, all of these things need to be in place and it's handed down to us. It needs to come from the bottom. That's, that's where you're coming from. We just need to try stuff. We need to reconnect with why we liked rowing in the first place, which is basically all of us started rowing because at some point between our first 2K and our first outing, we really, really liked moving a boat, you know, and it's magical, you know, when it works well. And admittedly, I, I know, I know, I know it's magical when it works well because I spent a lot of time um, it not being magical and not working particularly well. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's where you get into single skulls. And then they're just literally one day, it's just like, oh, right. Oh, this is how it works. This is great. My single skulling at Ebchester over 350 metres, I would take both of you. I'd give yes. you head starts. I'm confident. Yeah, I know where um, the ducks are. I, I know where the ducks are lurking, man. I, I'm confident. Well, we definitely need to uh, challenge that because I reckon I could take you down. 
Well, you yeah, see, I'm, I'm fairly confident you probably could as well. <laughs> because we got this whole big line of trees. It's the old, old gravel pit in Canterbury. And you come down one side of it, and literally the best way of going around it is just burying one blade and just keep pulling on. And you just got to just like judge that stroke side blade as you're pulling on a bow side to not get it buried too deeply. And just like this nice big turn, and then you back up the cut. Um, no, I'm not coming down nice. to Canterbury to get my ass handed to me by a, a three-time Olympic champion and someone who was 20 seconds faster than me over 2K. Just because oh. you, you can't make it past the Angel of the North without bursting into flames like a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's probably true. But, you know, I've never seen the Angel of the North. I've literally really, I've just, I've been to Scotland, but I've never kind of like actually driven that far up the M1. Imagine um, an uh, imagine a, a, a Boeing seven four seven that's been jammed in into the ground by its tail and is just doing that. It's it's about as exciting as watching paint dry, but it is it is very symbolic of what I have no idea. Sorry, we're moving away from our guest. I, I I think that there are like huge kind of like potentials there, and I also think that we've got we could really benefit from technology, and and you know. To his credit, as mean as we are about him, Matthew Pinson and his drones at Henley have have been a revelation. I mean, that, that's something that you were talking about, so how to bring people in. You can get follow drones. That's, that's one way that you can increase visibility and just have it on the internet. If we could, like, have a slight grinding of gears and change the conversation, because... Are you about to change tag? Are you going to change I, tag? I, I, I want to ask about some of some of the races out there because we've had a chat before and you, you told us a few things about a few races that completely blew our minds. So, for instance, Beijing. Hmm. Yeah. Everybody who I've ever spoken to in rowing reckons that there was this last desperate incredible sprint finish this was the first time you'd ever been this fast in the last 350 meters you'd never been up to 41 strokes a minute as a crew before you know that that's the legend that i had in my head that, that beijing was the greatest boat race to watch because of this incredible sprint finish well, we said that. We said it in our Coxless Falls episode. That was the best finish. You know, we voted London 2012 the best row, but that was the best finish because it was victory from the jaws of defeat. And then we talked to you and you're like, no. Tell us about that. Hang on a minute. I need, I, I, I think I feel like I want you to explain to me what your perception of what I said was so that maybe then I can salvage this situation it was almost just as good but you basically sat there and said was what i loved about that race is that we just we just rode it we just rode from point a to point b as fast as we could and we didn't even think about what those daft aussie buggers were doing in the next lane yeah, we knew they'd gone off hard. We we knew they'd spent all of their money. Jurgen's thing is always to sit on, but we we knew and we couldn't see them. But we knew they must have gone off hard. And then it looks like a great finish, but actually we we they were slowing down and we were just carrying on. 
was, <laughs> I, and I'm paraphrasing because we didn't record the, our initial conversation, but yeah. I, I basically went home and kicked the cat because I had Matt Brown as, as one of the greatest finishers in Olympic history. And, and the man who actually engineered it just went, no, no, we, we knew they'd blow up and we just reeled them in. Oh, okay, no, all right. Uh, I Have reckon... we got that wrong? Have we got that wrong? Well, maybe halfway there. But I reckon it's... Um... So look, we, we, we sat on that start line and we had... What have we done? In the, in the semi, I think we'd rode down the Aussies by about halfway and we moved away from them. And it was kind of like, look, guys, we sat on that start. We know we can beat these guys. We've, we've done it once already. All we've got to do is just not cock it up. All right, just stick to the plan. We'll be through them by a thousand and we'll be off. And I remember, I mean, <laughs> one of my, my fondest memories was turning around to the team, around to the guys, and I wanted to kind of deliver this like, let's put a nail in the coffin, let's sort of bury them, let's like show them really what we're made of. You know, that sort of like, you know, I'm sitting up here and I know you've got my back and I've got yours and I'm going to kill myself and it's going to be a great display of our best bits of rowing ever. And I ended up turning around and saying, let's, let's open up a can of worms instead of like the kind of kick ass or something stupid. And, and the guys looked, at, I hadn't realized what I'd said. And the guys looked at me and just started laughing. And it was, it was, um, it was a really actually nice moment. I mean, we still had that, the guy kind of swimming around the boats trying to take the weed off. So it was a few minutes before, but there was a moment of relaxation. There was a moment of, you know, if they could take time out of their, their, their sort of prep and their psyching up to laugh at me, it was sort of, actually, I think we're going to be all right. And that's, that's kind of how I started the race in, in as much as it felt good. It felt strong. It felt solid. Tons of confidence, tons of confidence. And we went off and we committed to exactly what we wanted to do. So the rate profile was there. The boat felt sweet. We were rowing along. And we knew at the beginning the Aussies would go a little bit crazy and they would probably be leading us by something. Um, so we just kept to our plan. And heads down, stroke, stroke, you know, and it was, it was really well executed. It's exactly what we wanted. And it felt good. And we kind of went through halfway. And I was like, well, we should be getting close. I should be starting to see their stern right now. And I sort of would give it a little glance and there was no stern. So I had to like crank my neck at one point just to see where they were. And it was like, well, okay, that's a little bit too far. So and we went through 750 meters and we were starting to, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say panic, but the urgency was coming into the boat and we started to crank it up. Um, but it just seemed like everything we were doing wasn't making a difference. These damn Aussies were still, you know, a good half, three quarters, if not more length up. And I remember going into the last 500 thinking, like, I was thinking there's, there's nowhere to go but all in right now. Like, absolutely, when the guy, when, you know, when, it was, when Stevie gives the call, I am going just batshit crazy. There is nothing going to hold me back, you know, Four horses of the apocalypse are not going to come close to what I'm about to do. It was that kind of... So I remember as he called, we went up. And it wasn't the sort of, you know, what I was used to 
certainly from the earlier days, you know, you call up when you're going into the line and you just shorten and get more frantic and you just think, oh, anything, anything, anything. But, you know, because of the occasion, because of Jürgen, because of my crewmates behind me, because of all the blood, sweat and tears and, and, and because of what we'd done in training and how good I knew it had to be, it, we stayed long and the power went into the shell and it, you know, and this is where our stories may differ slightly <laughs> um, with your version, but the boat started to move. And I, I remember thinking like, Christ, if we can't, can't catch the Aussies and we have to settle with silver, then kind of fair play to them. Like I can't take that away from them because, you know, I'm going through pain barriers right now and it's, I'm going to fail on the line. I knew that, but it was getting close. And then at one point I, th I heard, I could just hear TJ in the bow seat going, just as we were kind of coming into the red boys in the last 250. And I, I only took it as we're getting close. And I think for that 250, then we started to explore the sort of rowing, which you kind of only are able to do when you do your, your max 15 power strokes, you know, in an 8K paddle, you know, where you really sort of explore the top end speed when you're fresh and you're not exhausted and you've got the energy. And we just kept going up and up and up. And it was, I, it was fantastic. It was just, so to think back to it was incredible, but I will, I'll hold my hands up and I will say that as much as we were going faster, I have to credit the Aussies with an absolutely ludicrous race event plan. You know, and I think they knew the only way to beat us was to stay in front of us for as long as possible in the hope that we would question ourselves and we would break down and row badly and they would be able to stay in front. And credit to, credit to the boys, credit to Jürgen, confidence that we had never broke down and right when we were tested to the absolute limit you know 300 meters to go probably something like half a length down the point where you know many many a crew would fall to pieces and throw the opportunity away i'm proud that we rose to the challenge and we we stuck to our plan and we executed our 100 percent race plan everything we left on the water that day but the Aussies got it all out of us. And it was, you know, it was fantastic. And so thank you to them for blowing up in the last 250 meters. Um, I, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it was a crowd pleaser that day. Yeah. It broke my rib. <laughs> really? Yeah, she was cheering and shouting so much. Uh, she was cheering and shouting so much and being kind of in the throng of it, in the, in the crowds that when I saw her after the race, she like she's like no no don't hug me <laughs> and she'd sort of damaged her ribs so much she uh yeah but um it was it was a good one can i just say that i i'm glad that we so willfully and and terribly misinterpreted your earlier comments because that was one of the most compelling descriptions of an olympic final i've ever heard and it actually tallies with what Lou and i said in that episode which was it was it was it was beautiful rowing up to 1700 but the way that you moved and the length that you held i think lewin said it was just the movement together the whole boat just seemed to pick up 
and it kept going and going and going. And it was, it was amazing to watch. I can't imagine what it must have been like to row in. So thank you for that description. That's, uh, that's real hairs on the back of the arms stuff. Well, the, um, I think the, the bit of video straight after the, the race um, and the sort of the pain and the emotion was, you know, that's just real rowing. I mean, that's, that, that's what we enjoy as our performance sport. It's the, you know, it's when, when you can kind of get a grasp of, of the pain of how much athletes are willing to put themselves through for a pure endeavor, you know, something so pure and simple as to going from A to B as fast as you can the clinical execution of that, but then actually when you're finished and all the last six minutes kind of flows out of the people involved, you see that it's, that's, I think what we really value in the sport. Um, it's just a shame that it's not as entertaining as a 90 minute rugby match. I don't know. I was, I was screaming and shouting pretty loud that, that day. Lewin, do you want to ask about the pair, or can I go straight to London 2012? Because I, I, well, I mean, I would, I would dearly love to ask about because for me, it, it kind of, so what you were saying about the epitome of our sport, there, for me, the period between um, Beijing and London, where you're racing in the pair, I kind of saw that. As, as one of the great uncredited legends of British running. And I've always wanted to know, what, how were you so determined that you just absolutely would not give up against the Kiwis? <laughs> um, so I think there was, you know, Pete and I have been in a pair for um, four years. To, to Beijing and the, we, we knew the strength of the team. We knew the strength of, of everyone, obviously from the four to the eight and the scholars. And, um, you know, it, it really kind of felt like we were like on the top of these giant, giant people. And that was, that was, that was an honor and a, and a sort of a thrill to be in that position. And I think, Part of me and my excitement for the pair was 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 a bit like I was saying at the beginning of this interview, actually. It was the challenge of doing something different. It was put ourselves into a vulnerable position. You know, there's less places to hide in a pair and it's you kind of expose yourself to different things. And that's why we do a lot of training in the winter in small boats. It's why all the, the trialing is done, done in small boats. It's because you kind of, you, you kind of see a lot more of the individual and it's the beautiful part of the sport where you know on a kind of on a selfish level I guess but also a, a performance level we want to know how good we are as individuals you know we spend all winter trying to be the best on the you know, the best thing you can be on the row machine or in the weights gym or the just to show your worth and like this is how good I am but then when you get into a team boat you 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 don't throw it away, but you put it all to one side and you have to commit entirely to that team boat. And, you know, when we were in the four, it was, we had to leave all that stuff we'd done in the pair behind. And which was, again, it's, it's, it's exactly why one of the reasons I love this sport, the challenge of, of doing that and getting the most out of a team versus you as an individual. It's, it's a beautiful dynamic, but you know, when we're rowing at the international level and we were, 
we had that opportunity, I think, to get to move into the pair and try something different and challenge ourselves in that way was really thrilling. And what developed was this battle. And it was like, it was kind of like growing against the ergo every race. You know, you're never going to win a 2K because, you know, oh, sure, I could have gone half a second faster. Or, God damn it, I could have broken six minutes. Or, you know, and that was kind of like our experience every damn international event that they turned up to and but you never stop you never stop trying you never stop exploring and discovering ways to be better and you know it to, to a lot of the extent you know it, it it enabled me to do what i love which is to to sort of sometimes throw caution to the wind right let's break it and rebuild it and do something else because we had the excuse because we weren't winning and that led to discovery and intrigue and actually what well, I'm Ziff and those those three years in the pair were some of the most educational the racing was just fantastic I mean I've obviously got my raft of excuses we didn't win like 2009 I was horribly ill I had a blood test straight after that event uh, not a blood test a pee test for you know anti-doping and uh, normally you know, you get your specific gravity and it normally comes out as um, 0 0.02 is on the limit of what is considered to be hydrated or not. Ideally, you want to be about between 0 0.01 and 0 0.02. And mine came out at 0 0.04. You know, I was, it was, I was peeing treacle. And because <laughs> for the previous sort of 48 hours, I'd been in a horrible place in the toilet in the hotel room for most of it. Um, but we only lost, we lost by less than a second. And I was like, crikey, if we can lose to them by less than a second, then damn it, we can do it next year. And we went to next year and that was in Carapira. And then we led them into the last, oh, we actually had our nose in front. The only pair to have done that ever, my tie just highlight. Out, out, out 1500, you went, you led them at 1500. Yeah, we had um, a camp. I mean, and then. That, 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 that race should be legendary. I mean, not, not only. Was it a bloody great race? I mean, it's hammer and tongs right yeah. up to the line. It was 2011, but after that, nobody was keeping those guys honest. <laughs> I mean, no, do, do, you, do you think you actually made those guys have more fun? Because <laughs> you, you, you were actually giving them a race. I think Eric Murray was having a lot of fun just sitting up in the bow, bow of that boat to be like, way, here we go, Eric. <laughs> no, I think, um, oh, you know, their, their training was brutal. You know, what they went through, the, the miles they did, you know, what their, their coach put them through. They deserved every second. Um, they, 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 they beat us by, and it was uh, fantastic experience to be racing such a high quality pair i mean there's no two ways that's that's the best bit of sport you you want and i've always said this you want your opposition to be as as best they can be because then when you beat them you can say that you race them at their best and i only wish that for the kiwi pair and they were and god damn it <laughs> they're always just a little bit better than us um but i'll you know i look back on those days fondly and uh, it's you know it's kind of it's the closest we ever got to kind of what you see between those big rivalries like the, you know, Federer and Nadal, 
um, you know, those sort of big sporting occasions where you just revel in that, that sort of story, you know, where you can touch it and you can be like, you know what the storyline is. And it felt, it felt fantastic to be honored, honored to be part of that. Um, mm. Yeah. So yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a great time. Yeah. I, I remember um, my last Henley, uh, my last year competing in 2010 at Henley, all of the talk was about whether or not you'd beat the Kiwi pair. I actually came up to the, um, the start line to watch you go off on one of your races. It was the first time I ever saw you and Pete roll live after, mm-hmm. after, after Beijing and watch it's your start just... sequence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you were gone. <laughs> it, it's just so, well, not sad, but I, one thing that always blew me away about the Kiwi pair was obviously at the, at the, at the world champs, you know, it was top speed. It, everyone focused for that event, but it seemed like they never came off that. Mm-hmm. You know, the World Cups, Henley, you know, they would, they would smash out these times and you just think, where do they go from here? Like, how can they be performing? And it was just relentless, that, that delivery of that high quality. And, you know, I think if anyone was to look back at all the records, you know, there was usually a good few seconds between us and them, between the World Cups. Damn it, you know, there was a few Henleys which were nearly embarrassing, but the World Championships is where, you know, and that's where Jürgen's programme is geared towards. That's where we, we got our, our our closest. But yeah, no, it, it made Henley really quite painful racing those guys because especially, I think we raced them on a Saturday once <laughs> and it was like, oh, we didn't even make it through to Sunday. <laughs> so yeah, it's... Um, yeah, no, those guys. My hats off to them. They, 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 they are well placed in their hall of fame at the top of this sport. When you went back into the four, did they make you better rowers going back into the four? So when you went back, you were like, right, this is going to be a good boat. We're going back to two great oarsmen. We've had, we've been battle tested for the last three years. This is going to be good. Yeah, it was. You know, without a doubt, you know, all the things I'd learned as a as an individual made me stronger. And it, you know, the thing about the, the London final is that we were going up against the Aussies version of Steve Redgrave. You know, they had Drew Ginn in their boat. It was going to be his last race. He was then, you know, the pinnacle of the sport. You know, he was off the back of the awesome foursome. You know, he was a, a popular loved figure and, you know, he was a formidable presence and, uh, you know, he had, was it a uh, Dunkley Smith and uh, a couple of other guys, they're big ergos in the boat. There was a lot of hype about them. They were, I think there was a fair amount of quality Aussie trash talk, sort of maybe a bit of sm- a bit subtle, but it was, it was there. And, you know, it's, um, that, that's definitely sharpened the mind. You know, it, the, London was the most nervous, nerve-wracking race I've ever done. You know, I was, I, it took me a good sort of 20 minutes to stop my legs shaking during the warm-up to sort of be able to focus my mind and, be, and get myself calm enough to start that race. It was terrifying. And that was a lot of due to the crowd and, and the home Olympics. But a lot of it was just the sort of the giant we were sitting next to, this, this Aussie character who was, you know, I read books about him when I started rowing. You know, he was, you know, it was Drew Ginn. It was like, holy crap. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, the whole season, it, it wasn't a smooth ride. You know, I think I had to learn how to be in a crew boat again. You know, Pete and I rode, you know, we'd rode so much together. You know, we, we fit very, very well. We matched each other perfectly, as in, you know, his traits where he stood out, I stood back and, and we complemented each other very, very well. So like being in that team was very easy. And uh, suddenly, you know, with Alex and TJ, had to relearn that. And I think that was a real big voyage for me. Um, and again, it's something I learned again in Rio when I went into the eight. But those experiences make me richer. And, you know, to have done it with, you know, the, sil the two of the silkiest men in the world, you know, Alex and TJ, the, you know, stand, stand out for being so graceful oarsmen. And I'll, you know, I, I used to definitely lean on my power and the grunt. But I like to think I had a little bit of grace and a little bit of fluidity, but it was, um, you know, there was a lot to learn. And by the time we got to London, you know, again, just like Beijing, I was confident, hugely confident, not only in the guys obviously sitting behind, but in everything we'd done, the voyage we'd been on, the robustness of, the, of our trait, of our character that we were going to uh, display down Dorney Lake and um, yeah, I mean, it, and it, it, it sort of unfolded into a really nicely boring race. I mean, we stayed between half length and the canvas up the whole way. Um, you know, I explored the same levels of pain, which I'd gone through in Beijing um, to stay in front. But, and it was, it was like once we were in the race, it all melted away and it was that same kind of clinical execution but at the edge of physical capability and mental awareness, you know, it was that sort of, that sort of commitment. And then I'm going to wax lyrical about this, but, you know, going into the last 500 meters when the crowd encompassed this boat on both sides, you got the best part of, I can't remember, it was 15 or 30,000 people. It was just, the noise was amazing. And it's, it's one of the, finest experiences that I'll ever have the honor to be part of, but it made a difference. And as we came into the last 500, you know, the adrenaline didn't stand a chance against that noise and the boat just kept, it was just fantastic. And again, to be part of, part of such a fine crew. And, and like I said, like go through that voyage of discovery of how to be a better oarsman to, to risk change and do something different and, and, and take that step up was all the way through that season. And then to finish off by beating what you consider one of your heroes, was certainly one of the people you revere and you, you respect before they enter the room, but also to be awarded that gold medal by the Australian IOC representative because they thought their Aussie boat was gonna win, was actually something that's echoed down the years because it was Thomas Back from Germany you know, president of the IOC who presented our medal in Rio because they figured the Germans were going to win that race. And I actually can't recall who presented in Beijing, but anyway, it's, we've always managed to kind of overturn the, the, the expectation, which has been pretty special. That's beautifully put. Something me and Aaron talked about is that there are all these, these books, right? 
that have been written by people who were rowing before 2005. <laughs> well, that narrows it down. Goddamn lawyers are going to be busy on Friday. <laughs> but no, but, but seriously, did, there's, do you not think there is a book to be written about rowing from 2005 to 2021? You know, what happened after the old one, the fat one, and the pretty one left? <laughs> Say that again. What happened between? What What happened after the old one, the fat one, and the pretty one left? <laughs> I said this to Aaron a couple of weeks ago. It seems like, from what you've told me, we've just got these things in our head about, as, as rowers, about what's happened in these races and who these people are and what they're like. And part of them, we're just superimposing your faces on the characters who've written the books. So, you know, every so often the new technical wizard who's the new Tim Foster comes along. <laughs> there's, there's the new, um, this guy. And it just seems like there's all these stories and there's all these characters who just haven't, haven't been given their space and, because they're not called Matthew, James, Tim, and Steve. And, and you know, I don't know, maybe if we knew someone who could write books and, you know, knew about rowing, Aaron. I'm nearly um, finished my book about rowing, and then I'll get straight on to Andy's book about rowing, which he doesn't know that I'm going to write about him yet. I, I think... I mean, it, don't you feel that there, there is, there's a new story to be told about British rowing? That's such an interesting, um, I, I can't write a book because I'm basically illiterate. Um, I, I just, um, writing pen to paper is not my strong point. So I don't it's think that's ever going to happen. Well, I'm dyslexic. So between us, we'll, it'll be full of spelling errors, but <laughs> I, I think what, what Lewin is saying is Steve, Matthew, James, and to a lesser extent, Tim, are household names. You are a three-time Olympic champion, multiple world champion. You were a fantastic pair with Pete. You were part of, of two amazing Coxus Fours wins and eight in Rio that just looked like it was fast and having fun at the same time. You've just described two Olympic races in such, with such lyricism and such insight that I, I genuinely had hair standing up on the back of my arms. Let's sit down some time and we'll see what we can do, eh? Yeah, I, th I think there's two things. No one's become a household name after after Sydney and, and, and Athens, um, and you should be. And secondly, rowing memoirs should be a lot better than they are because it, it is an epic sport. There's internal battles and there's external battles and there's the journey that you've just talked about, but it very rarely comes out in a, in, in a rowing narrative. Is, is that where you're going with that, Lewin? Yeah, I, I, I just think that there, there is an untold story um, and you do seem to be at the heart of it. You know, all the way through Beijing, London, Rio, you, you've just, you know, we haven't, we've just been trying to retell the, the old story in our heads. I, 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 just, I just feel that it's time for like a new voice and, and new characters to come through. I, th I think the, the, the bit of perspective which we need is, you know, right through until Steve's fourth. So when they were the only gold medal in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. Correct? 
even including Atlanta, they were virtually unknown. Yeah. You know, it, it took Redgrave four gold medals to proclaim on, on the BBC across the world that if anyone should see him back in the boat, they should shoot him. Mm. And then, you know, was it a few weeks later, he was back rowing or however long it took. Um, and then that all those storylines to unfold of colitis and all the bits falling off and, you know, this sort of, this, the, the, the granite starting to, to chip away. But the, the you know, that, that dream of the fifth gold medal, I mean, that that was a hook and because there was no one else you know i think was it linford christie was out you had no other sort of returning olympian mm. uh, sorry a returning olympic gold medalist i think there was there was there was enough appetite in the kind of the desert of success around british sport that meant that you know what the bbc can do this documentary and the gold fever thing came out and then the dream came true you know, and he won that gold medal and the giant that Steve Redgrave is and everything he did and, and how Jürgen masterminded the whole thing when, you know, again, it, it's kind of why coaches shouldn't just look at numbers. You know, they need to look at the big picture and all the subjective stuff to Bill Cruz because what he did there wasn't written down on spreadsheets. And that story is why Steve Redgrave is still the most popular rower in this country and no one has ever come close to him. And I think to a certain degree, and then this is again the sort of fault of the sport, is that when you build a four for a 2K race, there's only so many storylines that can unfold. You know, it's the last minute replacement, it's the injury, it's it's the the, the profile and the race plan, it's... It's all those bits, you know, at the Athens for, you know, even my story from Beijing kind of doesn't compare to what the guys did in Athens, you know, holding to the length of a beer can, the whole damn race. I mean, come on, just pull your finger out, Pinson, just do it, you know, put in the big strokes and get the half length. But, you know, that storyline is incredible. And, you know, that was, that was, you know, the knighting of, of Steve and, all we were, all we were doing was doing it again. Is the wrong way to say it, but the storylines had been exhausted, and unless rowing has to feed off the, the wider media, you know, we don't have our own internal media that can sort of elevate superstars within the sport. You know, rowing regatta magazine is was you know our our standard bearer, and it and it was there about the overall good, not. The, the personality so it could never kind of try and create a superstar within the sport and make it stand on its own right and the only reason Redgrave and Pinson stood shoulders and above everyone else then and now is because they had that storyline and you know again but going back Steve was the one who did things differently you know he he, he looked outside the box and he broke the mold and he helped with Mike Spratlin to do things that no one else dared to believe in almost. There were other people trying to do it maybe, but no one believed in it and committed and who also happened to have the natural talents and the natural strength and all the other attributes that made it work. But he's the one and it took him, you know, four Olympic cycles to finally be recognized 
for that daring and that, that, that decision to risk it all. So yeah, I don't, I don't look, yeah, I'd love to write a book. I've got no, <laughs> no, uh, no, no perceptions. I'd ever be anything more interesting than a sort of how to guide on laying a carpet, but I'm, uh, I've got my stories, you know, and I'll bore my kids with them. And, you know, that's good for me. I think what I'm really proud of is actually what I'm doing now. And I can, that's where I can use my three gold medals to the absolute most powerful is I can talk to people outside of the sport on a level, which means that they might consider investing in the sport or being part of the sport or doing their bit or actually getting involved and getting in a boat and considering the sport for more than their perceptions, which generally is that it's just an elite sport for posh students, which it isn't. And it breaks my heart every time I hear that kind of summary. Um, and I think that's where my gold medals are focused best. And that's where, you know, as much as I'd love to write a book and wax lyrical about how great I was, I, I don't think it's ever going to come because hopefully, hopefully race the Thames becomes a fantastic event and it takes off and it shows what's capable. Hopefully one day I'll get regatta London up and running and it will be stand on its own two feet and it will show how different rowing can be and how great it can be in a completely different light and actually how it then strengthens the whole of the sport and actually Henley benefits and all 2k multi-lane courses events benefit because we're just a more wholesome diverse sport and that's where I think um yeah that's where I think uh my pain and suffering for the last for the last 14 years can be really used at its best. <laughs> Sorry, that was me making an old knackered voice. No, it's okay. You can you can just copy mine because I'm much more older and much more knackered. And and Loon and I have um, occasionally said things on this podcast that that might lead the casual observer to think that we don't rate them or we don't respect them. Um, Anyone who's listened to it will know I went down to Agecroft the, the next morning after what's now known as Redgrave's Last Stand in rowing circles to become a rower because I was so inspired. I have nothing but respect for what he did and how he did it. And we may also take the rise out of Matthew on occasion, but he's related to God, so he's big enough to take it. And we only take the rise out of James because, frankly, if we could be anyone, it would probably be James. And I think having talked your ears off for the last hour and 45 minutes and with you having small children to wrangle <laughs> unless Lewin has any more questions I think we should say Andrew Andy Hodge Hodge thank you very much <laughs> thank you no it's been a joy um it's funny isn't it like when I was when I, the bits I love about another bit I love about rowing is just getting into the crew room or the hotel or wherever and just chatting shit about rowing and that's always like for you guys. And, uh, I love that's literally why we started this. It, Basically it why we started like, it. So oh, if yeah. you if you ever want to come back on, we'd, we'd, we'd gladly have you. Or if you ever, you know, come along, bring a friend, and we'll just we'll get some beers in next time and just talk rubbish again. Sounds good to me. Um, before we go, do you have another event that you want, like, our whole 150 listeners to find out about? Yeah, I completely forgot, didn't I? That would be awesome. And for any listeners who are still listening, because I reckon like most of them must have turned off by now. Um, yeah, like Race the Thames. It's, um, look, this is, this is on one level, it's an excuse to get people motivated through the winter of isolation. Um, it's the format is you do it at home. You have 
or you do it at your local gym or you do it at your boat club you you keep motor you get a, a team of eight people together and look find people who need to be in a team find people who are suffering because they're then they're, they're out of that community loop they're, they're 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 not in a great place and get them involved get them training get on the zoom erg i mean that thing is so stupidly simple it's brilliant but motivate people to get training and then in march gear up for an event for a race the thames which is actually quite long it's 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 either 72 kilometers or it's 346 kilometers but you can do it over a week you can race it you can just do it because you actually that thing actually sounds quite hard you can fundraise for your local charity for your best charity but do it because do it because it's different. Do it because it could be a bit of fun, but you don't really know yet because you haven't tried it. So let's just do it. Um, do it to raise money. Do it for your mates who might need to be part of something right now because there aren't any head races or there aren't any any security in life at the moment. Um, and then do it for LYR because they help. Last year they helped 5,000 kids from disadvantaged backgrounds try the sport and... If that's not a reason for a rower to, to support uh, a charity like that, um, then I don't know what is. But um, I'm going to have a lot of fun with it. I'm creating this amazing platform for it. And I'm just hoping and praying that it all works because if all my wildest dreams pull off, then it's going to be better than the Beijing final. And you can be part of it. Let's do it. Yeah. And where, where do you go on the internet to, to support, to sign up, well, just, just go on to Twitter, you'll find it. Just Google Race the Thames, you'll find it. It's www.londonyouthrowing.com backslash Race the Thames 2021. Let's do it. Easy peasy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Well, that was Hodge. And I'm still a little bit shell-shocked, even though it's been a little bit of time since we recorded that chat with him. Again, there just seems to be a little bit of a synergy of all the things that we've learned and started thinking about doing this podcast and what Hodge is trying to push. He, he's talking about how to get more people into the sport, how to make it more accessible as a sport, how to make it more fun, how to how to spread that knowledge and, you know, mess with format and, and kind of say what we've done so far has been great, but it's not going to get us to the next level. It's genuinely fantastic having a guy of his stature with his, he's got a really big list of medals. Let, let's just say that. I mean, he, he, he's won a few things to have somebody who's actually done it at the highest level and is now thinking, right how can we make this more fun how can we instead of going out and doing a long slow session up against the other four start messing around with the steering and doing like dodgy maneuvers like flying around bridges and sort of making this the essence of the sport is like i'm really really glad that we've got this guy in the sport still working for the sport still clearly loving the idea of getting out on the river and pushing a boat backwards. When Hodge got in touch with us and said, I really like your podcast, we initially thought that he must have been DMing the wrong people. 
and talking about some other highly produced, well-researched and slick podcast that he recently heard about. That was pretty incredible. They really do say never meet your heroes. And maybe I've just been exceptionally lucky, but I've just met one of mine. They don't disappoint you. Uh, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I, th- I think we can probably leave it there. I think so. Bowside Holding, stroke side out. Good night, people.